0: Well, uh, you're perfect my, now. My neck. My, my neck. Perfect? Oh, bang on my chest if you think I'm perfect. Go ahead, bang on it. Beautiful. What a neckle. It's empty. The tinsmith forgot to give me a heart. No, no heart? heart. <sighs> no heart. All hollow. <laughs> When a man's an empty kettle, he should be on his mettle, and yet I'm torn apart. Just because I'm presuming that I could be kind of human if I only had a heart. I'd be tender, I'd be gentle, and awful sentimental regarding love and art. I'd be friends with the sparrows and the boy who shoots the arrows if I only had a heart. Picture me a balcony above a voice sings low. Wherefore art thou,
1: Romeo? I hear a beat.
0: How sweet, just to register emotion, jealousy, devotion, and really feel the part. I could stay young and chipper, and I'd lock it with a zipper, if I only had a
2: heart. Oh, you're welcome. You're going to have that stuck in your head the whole day. Welcome to Hope, everyone. My name is Eli. I'm one of the ministers here. I'm so glad to see you all. And that was, of course, the iconic Wizard of Oz, the tin man singing, If I Only Had a Heart. And I think he makes some profound statements in that song about... Love, which is our topic for today. This is the fourth weekend in Advent. I can't believe this week is Christmas. And uh, as you've heard in all of our announcements, we are incredibly excited for all of the things we have going on, the drive-ins and drive throughs and online Christmas Eve services. It's going to be a great week, but we've been going through the whole season of Advent, looking at each component, and the last weekend is always about love. And there are some interesting challenges when you get asked to preach on the topic of love. You know, the, the scripture reading for today, John 3, 16, the most well-known verse in all of scripture for God so loved the world that he gave his only son whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life I mean what more could you preach about that that you haven't already heard about John three sixteen about the idea of love Pastor Scott preached just a few weeks ago an amazing sermon about uh, the different meanings of love in the original Greek language and it was just great and what more can we say and then not only that but love is this immense idea it's so big 1 Corinthians 13, 13 tells us that three things last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the Bible tells us that the greatest of these is love. So the most important eternal part of our existence, we're going to unpack in the next 30 minutes. So buckle up, here we go. I'm sure most of you have seen The Wizard of Oz. If you haven't, please do. Um, amazing movie. But what many of you may not know is that it's actually based on a book. The movie came out in 1939. Uh, the book, written by Frank Baum, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, came out in 19, 1900 is when it was published. And uh, what also many people don't know is that he wrote about 15 books about the whole universe of Oz. Think the Chronicles of Narnia or um, Lion, uh, uh, what's the other one, Lord of the Rings, that kind of world building, this massive publication history of all of these different dozens of stories and characters about the land of Oz and going into their backstories and all these great things. Uh, my daughter and I have actually been reading these books this year, she's over there, um, having great time just getting to know these characters and um, she had, we were actually two or three books into it before she figured out or knew that there was a movie and I think she got kind of mad at me and was like, you, we could just watch the movie reading all these books and we could have just seen the movie. It's important to read the books. You get to know more about what the characters are up to. And, and in The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, uh, the Scarecrow and Dorothy meet the Tin Man and he tells them that he wants a heart. But actually in the books, they get into sort of a back and forth debate about which is better. The Scarecrow wants brains and the, the Tin Man wants a heart and they start to debate which one would make you more human. What's the most preferred thing to have if you could only have one? And so uh, if the kids are already checked out, here's story time from the wonderful Wizard of Oz. It says, both Dorothy and the Scarecrow had been greatly interested in the story of the Tin Woodman, And now they knew why he was so anxious to get a new heart. And you'll have to read the book to know. All the same, said the Scarecrow, I shall ask for brains instead of a heart. For a fool would not know what to do with a heart if he had one. Well, I shall take the heart, returned the tin woodman, for brains do not make one happy. And happiness is the best thing in all the world. And then they meet the cowardly lion who wants courage. And what's the author doing here in this book for children? Well, Frank Baum writing these books is actually doing something closer to ancient Greek philosophy than children's literature. Ancient Greeks, the you know, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, these these philosophers were were interested in this idea. What what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have happiness, have a good life? What are the parts that make a person whole and complete? And they wrote about these things. Plato actually came up with this quantifiable, what he called a three-part self or a three-part soul. He said that a person is essentially these three things, your, your mind, your head, your heart, and then your, he called them your appetites. So or I think in our, in our language, we would say your guts. You know, in our culture, when we say, well, I'm going to go with my gut. That's kind of what he's talking about, and Plato would actually say you probably shouldn't do that because you've got more brains up here that God gave you to to actually make decisions with. But they're all important, that all of these things is what makes an integrated, complete person, and all these different elements of yourself need to be in alignment for you to find a, a good life, a happy life. And that without alignment in these three areas, then you can actually be a disintegrated person and that all of these components work together at the same time. And so I think that looking at these three areas, because you can see how the Wizard of Oz sort of takes these characterizations of each and explores these different themes, it's kind of interesting to look at how we process love, this massive idea, based on the different parts of ourselves. You know, the Bible picks up on this and talking about what it means to actually love God and love each other, and we're going to explore that. But let's start, you know, moving from the top down. What does it mean to process love cognitively, with your head, with your mind, with your reason. I don't know where your head's been at this year. Um, We we heard in the Hope 360 that part of what our our Advent Missions Project has actually been is resourcing and providing uh, aid for our frontline healthcare workers, not just because of the physical health crisis that this year has shown to be, but also the massive mental health crisis that's been going on this year. That so many people haven't been affected physically by the pandemic, but they have been affected mentally. And how are we working to address that? I don't know what you're going through, but for me, uh, counseling has been an important part of my mental health journey, even before the pandemic, for years and years, seeking out therapy and counselors to to just work on the things that are affecting my mind. And if you've ever wondered about that or, or thought maybe this year it'd be really good to talk to somebody, a mental health professional, I would definitely encourage that. Um, at Hope, we actually even partner with locations and, and different centers around the Des Moines area that we can help you get connected with if you've never done it before. Just give me a call or email me. I'd love to put you in contact with uh, with a Christian healthcare worker, mental health professional who can help you talk through some of these mental health issues that are going on that are really widespread across our community, and we want to be a church that helps address that. And so, counseling for me has been really important for many years. Last year, before the pandemic, I was talking with my counselor, and, and he said, um, Eli, I really think you would benefit from something called mindful self-compassion. And I thought, well, that's really pretty touchy-feely for me. I don't know about that. Um, But he gave me some reading to do, and I like reading. So the more I got into it, the more I really started to appreciate what this was. It turns out, and I don't know if you're like this, but I'm really hard on myself. My counselor said, Eli, you're awfully hard on yourself. And I said, isn't everybody? Like when you make a mistake or you experience failure or you go through tough times or you sin, don't... I just beat myself up. You know, man, you're weak. You're a failure. Of course you would do that. You're a bad person. Maybe nobody else deals with that. But in my head, that's what goes on when I start to feel these things about, man, I I just keep failing and keep making these mistakes over and over again. This sin has become such a big part of my life. And I will attack myself mentally, thinking that that's the best way that that I can get out of it, right? Turns out that's not a very healthy way to live your life. And thankfully, my counselor told me that. So he turned me on to this idea called self-compassion, mindful self-compassion. And I just want to read you a little bit about what that means and what it looks like. It might be a help for you. This is from Dr. Kristen Neff, who specializes in this. Self-compassion involves treating yourself the way you would treat a friend who's having a hard time, even if your friend blew it or or is feeling inadequate or is just facing a tough life challenge. Self-compassion is a practice in which we learn to be a good friend to ourselves when we need it most. So that's the definition, but she gives an example to kind of help you understand this a little bit better. So imagine your friend calls you on the phone, and you just pick up and say, hey, how are you doing? Terrible, she says. Choking back tears. You know that guy, Michael, I've been dating? Well, he's the first man I've been really excited about since my divorce. Last night, he told me I was putting too much pressure on him and that he just wants to be friends. I am devastated. You sigh and say, well, to be perfectly honest, it's probably because you're old, ugly, and boring. Not to mention needy and dependent and you're at least 20 pounds overweight. I just give up now because there's no hope of finding anyone who will ever love you. I mean, you don't even deserve it. You would never say that to your friend. I hope. I hope you would never say that to your friend. But how often is that what we tell ourselves? When we make a mistake And we're the only one who hears it. It's in our own mind. And we say, you had that coming. Of course you would fail again. You don't really deserve happiness or love or joy or these things that we talk about. And in your head, you start to beat yourself up over and over and over again about these mistakes. And it tears you down. The Bible actually does pick up on this. This isn't a psychology lecture. If I was giving it, it would be a terrible one. The Bible picks up on this idea. Jesus actually teaches on what it means to have self-compassion. A lot of times in the New Testament when Jesus is teaching, other religious leaders are trying to trick Jesus by asking him really difficult theological questions. And in Matthew 22, these religious leaders ask him, Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What what is the command that would sum up all of the law and all of the prophets and all the prophecies that happen? What is the greatest command? And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, the the Shema Israel, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. In Deuteronomy 6, it says strength. Maybe you can see here this this complete integrated self, your mind and your heart and your body. and, and, And Jesus, of course, because we believe that this is an eternal experience, your soul, to love God with all of yourself, not just parts of yourself, To love with everything you have, but then Jesus says the second is equal to it, that you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I used to, of course, read this and think, well, that means that I need to be deferential to my neighbor, I need to treat them the way that I would want to be treated, I need to sacrifice so that I can lift my neighbor up, and of course, that's a part of it. But as I began processing what being self-compassionate looks like, I began to read this and think, what if you just thought of it inverted? Would it be possible for me to love my neighbor if I don't even like myself? Maybe I can't love my neighbor any more than I love myself. Perhaps it could be that unless I love myself, loving my neighbor is impossible for me. And if I try to love my neighbor without loving myself, it's empty, it's hollow, it doesn't actually work. I don't have compassion for other people because I don't have compassion for myself. And I began processing this as a a healthy way of living out this greatest command is actually to start by giving yourself a break and seeing your life the way that God sees your life. In our scripture reading for today, we know John 3.16. This is God's love for you. John 3.17 says that the Savior did not come into the world to condemn The world, but to save the world. When God looks at you, he doesn't look at you in in your failure and in your weakness and say, well, you had that coming. You don't deserve my love. That's not how God sees you. God looks at you through Christ and says, I love you. And I'm sorry you're going through that. And how can we work on it to make it better? God has infinite love and compassion for you. And, And for us, what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves is to first realize that that is how God sees us. That all the, the damage we do to ourselves by beating ourselves up over our failures and our sins, that's not what God is up to. God is trying to get you to understand through his son, Jesus Christ, especially at a time like Christmas, that he would do anything for you because he loves you perfectly. And for us to begin seeing ourselves in that light through the eyes of Christ, who is looking at you not with condemnation, but with salvation in mind and transformation in mind. So that's, that's part of what loving cognitively means, I think. And then how do we move that from the head down into the heart? You know, maybe for you this isn't something you struggle with, but, but how do we migrate that love of God that we, we know, we understand, how does that get down into our heart? The tin man wants a, a, a heart because he feels like that's what would make him human and bring him happiness. But when they, when they actually meet the Wizard of Oz... Uh, they realize that he's just a, a humbug, an old trickster who can't do anything. He's just a, a magician. And uh, they, he actually gives the tin man in the books a silk heart that is stuffed with sawdust. And they put it in. It, doesn't, it isn't anything. It's just a representation of what was already there. One of the great things about this book is just the realization that, that, that nobody else can give you what isn't already present in your life. That, that God has made you in his image. He has made you with the capacity for love for yourself and for other people. There's a, a parable that comes from the Jewish tradition that I really like. It talks to, speaks to this. A student was talking with his rabbi and says, why does the Torah, the law, the, what we call the Old Testament, why does it tell us to place these words upon your hearts? So places like Proverbs 3.3 3 says, let love and faithfulness never fail you. You shall bind them around your neck and write them upon the tablets of your heart. And he's Troubled by this preposition, why does it not tell us to place these holy words in our hearts? The rabbi answers, it is because, as we are, our hearts are closed. We cannot place the holy words in our hearts. So we place them on top of our hearts, and there they stay until one day the heart breaks and the words fall in. And there are things this year that I think probably all of us have experienced that have broken our hearts in one way, shape, or form. Whether you've been personally impacted by this pandemic, whether you've been personally affected or even just tangentially affected by the the social unrest that we've experienced right now around racism, or whether you've experienced personally or witnessed the division, the, the, the total lack of empathy and understanding for our fellow human beings throughout the entire course of the year, it is heartbreaking. And I think God is allowing these things for us to see how much we need to change. That until our heart breaks, the words of God, the love of God can't actually sink down in there. That it's going to be hard for us to feel love from God until our hardness is changed. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture comes from Ezekiel 36. If you have your Bibles, you can open there because we're going to look at three verses in Ezekiel 36. That again, I think, point to this progression that we're talking about from head to heart to body. And in Ezekiel 36, he's prophesying about what the world is going to look like when the Messiah comes. When Jesus comes, when the Son of God, God's Savior, His Holy One comes into the world, how is that going to change us, affect us? What's it going to look like? And so Ezekiel prophesies, starting in verse 25 of chapter 36, "...I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean." I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. And to me, this sounds like he's writing about what God is going to do to our our mind, where we process idolatry and impurity. And the Bible says that the things that you take into your eyes, into your mind, affects your heart. And so the the first thing I think that God wants to address is how we think about the world that we live in and how we think about him. The, the, The things that we prioritize above God is what an idol is. And that's such a massive problem for pretty much everybody who's ever lived. Anything we place above God. And he wants to address that. He will sprinkle clean water on us. Uh, There's a song by the lead singer of Switchfoot, John Foreman, that's called Baptize My Mind. It's about this. God wants to baptize your mind, to cleanse you, to take away these impurities. And then it says in verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a tender and responsive heart of flesh, depending on what your translation says. This is one of those types of verses that I think we can read past too quickly. You know, when you read it and you think, man, this sounds like, just like we have the idiom in our culture that we can go with our gut, may not be a great idea. We can read this and think that God can change my heart. That God can change what's going on in here. You know, the, the Grinch's heart will grow... Two, three sizes in one day, I don't know. We have this idea that God can change my heart. And that's not what Ezekiel is saying here. He's saying that your heart needs to be new. How can you change a heart of stone? God doesn't want you to go through life. If, you're, if your hard heart breaks over what's going on right now, or if, if at the, this season of Christmas, when we step back and realize that we are celebrating God sending his son into the world to save us, because the continuation of that story, the fulfillment of that story is that Jesus Christ will die on a cross to save us from our sins, if that doesn't break your heart, to feel broken over that. And then for God to say, here, I don't want you to have to live with a broken heart of stone that doesn't feel anything. I want to give you a brand new heart, something that is tender and responsive, that feels empathy and compassion for other people, that doesn't look on others' decisions with, with judgmentalism, but with understanding and love, that doesn't see the world the way that we would typically uh, interpret our own, uh, our own self through condemnation, but that says God looks at the world with love and a desire to save and to restore and replace cold things with Hearts of flesh that, that feel, that, that love. To allow that truth of God's love to go from your head that you know it to your heart that you feel it. But then there's more. So Ezekiel 36 keeps on going. 25, I think, talks about our mind. 26 talks about our heart. And then in 27 it says, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That, that at a certain point... We, we actually do have, as a part of Christianity, a, a moral imperative to live lives of integrity, to, to follow God's instructions, to follow God's laws, to apply them to the way that we live our life. But too often, I think, in Christianity, we get this backwards. We focus on this as sort of the first step. You become a Christian and now you need to follow the rules, Kind of makes sense, that's how just most everything works in our society. Follow these laws, follow these guidelines, live a good life. And then when we fail at those things, because we haven't allowed God to transform the way we see ourselves, we haven't allowed God to replace the way that we feel about others, we're just living a life of cold, dead morality, and our failures keep us beating ourselves up. That's not how God wants us to live our lives. Yes, integrity, character, following God's laws is important. But you're not going to be able to do that until you allow him to baptize your mind, cleanse you from impurities and idolatries, which again, he says he will do. I will cleanse you from those things. I will give you a new heart. He's not saying you need to wake up tomorrow and decide you're going to be a more loving person. Love, we're told in the Bible, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's God saying, I will put my spirit in you so that once you've allowed him to transform your mind and to replace your heart, it's at that point that you can begin living a life that actually puts this love into action, that motivates you to love, not just in words, but with the way that you live your life. So I think we can kind of stay in the same, I don't know, genre of outdated musical theater. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say that I really love My Fair Lady. I think it's a great musical. And the movie was uh, made in 1964. It's pretty good, too. Uh, If you've never seen My Fair Lady, that's an awful shame. Um, Eliza Doolittle, the main character, experiences some of the things that we're talking about. Where does love come from? And how do you process love? And what does it look like? And throughout the course of the, the story, she's uh, seeing it played out in different ways and finally she just gets so frustrated with what she's seen people's different interpretations of love is that she has something to say about what it should really look like let's take a look
1: oh, freddie you don't think i'm a heartless snipe, do you oh,
2: darling how could you imagine such a thing you know how i feel i've written two or three times a day telling you sheets and sheets
0: And the world is full of singing, and I am winging higher than the birds. Touch, and my heart begins to crumble, the heavens tumble, darling, and I'm...
1: Words, 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 I'm so sick of words. I get words all day through, first from him, now from you. Is that all you blighters can do? of stars burning above if you're in love show me tell me no dreams filled with desire if you're on fire show me here we are together in the middle of the night don't talk of spring just hold me tight anyone who's ever been in love will tell you that this is no time for a chat haven't your lips Longed for my touch Don't say how much Show me Show me Don't talk of love Lasting through time Make me no undying vow Show me now Read me no song Read me no rhyme Don't waste my time Show me of June. Don't talk of fall. Don't talk at all. Show me. Never do I ever want to hear another word. There isn't one I haven't heard. Here we are together in what ought to be a dream. Say one more word and I'll scream. Haven't your arms hungered for mine? Please don't explain. Show me. Show me wait until wrinkles and lines pop out all over my brow. Show me
2: love. You tell him, Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, the love that we have and the love that we know and feel has to turn into actions that we express. Our scripture reading for today, God so loved the world that he thought nice things about you, or God so loved the world that he felt pretty good about. No, God so loved the world that he did something about it. He gave his only son. You know, Eliza Doolittle's quoting scripture and not even knowing it. And I've always loved how the symmetry works. So John 3.16, John's gospel account, talks about what God's love looks like. And in 1 John 3.16, his letter to the church, he tells us how we're supposed to respond to that. How we are supposed to reflect God's love expressed in Jesus Christ. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Period. That is how we know what love is by the actions that God was willing to take to show you his love. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Now again, I think that the progression is important here. If we begin to try to act in love without first having understood it for ourselves and felt it, then our actions, whatever volunteerism or community service that we think is a loving action, devoid of any understanding or empathy, will actually, I think at best, be inauthentic. But when our loving actions are preceded by the understanding of God's love for us and the true cognitive reception that God sees you with salvation and love in mind and allows our heart to break for the world around us, changing it to a heart that feels, it's then that the loving actions that we begin to do for our brothers and sisters in the world, then it's true. Then it really does show who God is. Not just the nice things that we want to do, but out of a response of the love that we've experienced, we want to shine that light into the world. That's when those loving actions can really start to come. So as we kind of wrap up here today, I just want to ask you where you see yourself in all of this? You know, as you're listening to this, maybe there's one of these components that you feel like God is saying, hey, you know, 2021's coming up. We're, we're starting a new year. What is the, the area you think God is asking you to, to address? Where do you want to spend time with Him? Is it your mind? You know, are, are you struggling? Like, like I have struggled with constantly beating yourself up over your failures and weaknesses and sin, and, and you can't seem to get past that. Is that an area where you're saying, God, I really need you to speak to me, your vision for my life, that you see me with love, and I need to understand that. All of these things I encourage start with prayer, absolutely. We we are a people who believe that this this is God's territory. If love is the most significant, eternal part of our existence, that means that only God can transform these things, only God can do something about it. So start by praying, God, baptize my mind like Ezekiel 36:25 cleanse me of these impurities take away my idols work on my thought life god help me to see my life the way that you see my life And then I want to follow this up with things that we're doing as a church that can actually put this into action. Christy announced it at the beginning of the service that that we are doing a read through the Bible in a year campaign. And I would encourage everybody to jump in on this in one way or another. You can register online, but we have resources, reading plans, and journals that can help you all the way through it out in our cafe. We can get you set up today. You can register on our site to go through it with with a group or by yourself to receive encouraging videos and emails, and it's going to be great. It's a great way for God to baptize your mind, to fill it not with the things of the world, but to fill it with his words, his promises. Maybe that's an area you feel okay about right now. You see yourself the way God sees you, but now you need it to migrate from your head down into your heart, and you're struggling with making that step. You know, pray about that. God, give me a new heart. I'm tired of living with this cold, broken thing in my chest. I need something new. I want to be truly human, the way that you created me to be, able able to feel compassion and empathy for my neighbors. Pray about that. But then something we're also doing that I think can help, on on Monday nights, we've actually transitioned our recovery, our Christ-centered recovery program, to small groups that we call Finding Freedom. Finding freedom is for anybody who struggles with not just addictions to chemicals and substances, but who go through hurt and pain and depression and loneliness and fill in the blank, anything that you would want to come and talk about. Men and women meet in groups separately here in the building, and we have them on Zoom as well if you wanted to Zoom in. I myself go to the men's group because while I really appreciate counseling and what I get from that, I still need Christians to help me become more empathetic by listening to their stories. And by sharing my story and talking about what we're wrestling with spiritually. So you can check that out. And then finally, maybe you're struggling with where to put love into action. You know it and you feel it, but like the cowardly lion, you're just looking for some guts to your faith, some bravery. Again, pray about it. Don't feel like you have to make it happen for yourself. Ask God, where do you want me to show your love? how do you want me to put my love into action? It could be as simple as just inviting somebody to one of our Christmas Eve experiences, calling up somebody you know needs Jesus in their life and saying, hey, come with me. We'll go together and we'll talk about it and it'll be great. All kinds of ways that we do that as a church to to put the love of God into action and to show the world around us who he is and that he cares that God loves them. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer and then the worship team is gonna lead us in one more song. Let's pray. God, we are grateful. We are grateful for your love, that, that, that your love transforms us as individuals and as a community and as a world. And we, we hunger for that, God, this year. Right now, God, send more of your love so that we can experience not just the, the, the sentimentality of Christmas, but, but the truth, the power of your Son come to earth Because you love us. I pray for all of our neighbors who who we might invite, God, that you would make them receptive to invitations. I pray for the, the bravery, the strength, the courage it takes to do that. And I pray, God, for all of us to know today in a real and profound way how much you love us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.